What is it that draws you to role-playing games? What are the core elements which make these games come alive at the table? And what's the specific combination of elements which would engage you the most? Hey, it's Che, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello Rescuers, my name is Che Webster and this is Roleplay Rescue, the podcast about rediscovering our passion for tabletop roleplaying games. Having realised that I've been chasing my tail for the past 40 or so years and accepting a very simple misunderstanding as being true, the past couple of weeks has been an enriching and enjoyable period. While work and other commitments still limit my time to engage in play, the times when I do sit down to roleplay have been increasingly rich and enjoyable. The mission of the podcast has always been about helping gamers get back to the table. Throughout the past 12 seasons of Roleplay Rescue, we've been on a journey through many cycles of learning and growth, which has helped not just me, but also many other roleplayers get back to playing with greater confidence. Today, I'm taking the time to consider the core elements which, at least for me, make these games come alive at the table. My hope is that the discussion will spark some ideas for you on how to shift your play towards the specific combination of elements which would engage you the most. This is Season 12, Episode 15, Permutations. Let's begin with the meaning of the word permutation. Permutation, noun. Each of several possible ways in which a set or number of things can be ordered or arranged. The action of changing the arrangement, especially the linear order, of a set of items. In other words, permutation is about the way we arrange our role-playing game experience. It's also the means by which we can change that arrangement. I like this word as applied to role-playing games because it's clear that RPGs can be designed, played and experienced in multiple different arrangements. While it's tempting to think that there is one true way to play RPGs, and you'll probably think that this is either the way you typically play or the way you were first taught to play, simply because humans are prone to finding past patterns comfortable, the reality is that there are many possible permutations for achieving enjoyment at the table. My suggestion is that we take a subtractive approach. While most advice given about role-playing games, and indeed most activities in life, are additive, my approach is all about removing those things which get in the way of the specific experience I am seeking to have at the table. Adding new things to the system, to your rules, to your method or to your world, means adding a requirement to codify, remember and utilise that addition The human mind is not great at juggling vast quantities of information all at once. There is a limit to our cognitive capabilities, so it makes sense to lighten that load whenever possible. On the other hand, some elements are necessary to play an RPG at all. 
and many elements enhance the gaming experience we are seeking at the table. The first question, as with all design, is the hardest. What's it for? The primary purpose of a game is entertainment and enjoyment. If we assume that RPGs are a social gaming experience, then the purpose extends to being entertaining and enjoyable for all of the participants. Of course, RPGs can be and are played solo. If this is how you prefer to play, then the primary purpose is simply to entertain and give you enjoyment. Roleplay is the activity of taking on the persona of a fictional character within a set of circumstances and playing the part of that character faithfully. When we roleplay, the focus is on entering the perception and thought space of the character and acting in role as if we were that fictional person. The core of the activity is in seeking to experience the thoughts and emotions of the character while making decisions which make sense within the context of that character's situation. For our purposes, a simple and common example would be taking on the role of a knight who lives within an imagined pseudo-European medieval world. We would seek to imagine the circumstances within which our knight lives and then be presented with situations that would require the knight to respond. Perhaps while riding through a village, the knight is accosted by peasants, protesting at the manner in which their lord treats them. The player of the knight will try to picture the scene in their imagination, think and feel as if they were the knight, and make decisions on how this character will speak and act in response. It's the childhood game of make-believe, when we pretended to be World War II soldiers, cowboys and Indians, or knights and princesses, with deep apologies for examples drawn from my own childhood, wherein the context was considerable pressure to uh, conform to some very questionable assumptions about the roles of people in society. Back when I ran around the nearby waste grounds with a stick, representing my Mark II Lee Enfield rifle, with my friends hunting down and aiming to eliminate the other group of friends who carried their own sticks, representing Mauser Carabina 98K rifles, we were completely in role and inhabiting the imagined battlefields of World War II. The problems arose, of course, when one player's idea of what happened next conflicted with that of another player. In short, we lacked some clear rules. So far we have a situation and we have one or more characters. The situation occurs within an implied world, but that's something I will come back to in a bit. Our character faces some kind of challenge that arises from the situation and the player makes a decision to take some form of action, whether it's dialogue, the character chooses to speak, or some kind of physical activity, the character attempts an action, the principle is that the player has made a decision in role from the perspective of the character. The question then arises, does the action succeed? Most of the time, the action will most likely succeed without too much controversy. Let's pick up my childhood example of imagining myself as the British soldier fighting during World War II. As a kid, I was physically acting out the decisions I would make in the situation I was facing. It's kind of amusing to realise that I was in fact LARPing, live-action role-playing, long before I learned to role-play with books and dice. So, back in those days, I remember that a favourite defensive position in our imaginary wartime game was to occupy the top of a steep hill, perhaps 30 feet by 20 feet or so in a roughly oval shape. 
The hill had grassy sides and two sloping paths that ran along the narrow ends. At the top was a depression which formed a natural emplacement from which to defend the position. The view over the surrounding ground was excellent because the mound was perhaps two stories as much as 20 feet or so high. So when it was me playing the soldier in the physical sense of acting the role, my ability to climb that slope was dependent upon my physical abilities. And so was my ability to throw a grenade, usually represented by a tennis ball, and my ability to spot the enemy. Natural lines of sight and the natural laws of the world fit nicely with our fantasy of fighting heroically during World War II. Remember, this was the 1970s, post-war Britain, and my grandparents fought in that war. My dad was a soldier too. This was a time when soldiers were considered heroes by young boys. To return to the point, the rules of the game were mostly determined by the rules of the real world. If I could manage the action, then it would succeed. If not, well, I got a face full of dirt or the grenade went wildly off target. If I could wrestle my buddy to the ground and pin him down, it was easy to use my knife stick to stab him and declare him KIA. Where it mattered to actually have some rules was with the physics of the guns. You see, guns were represented by longer sticks. My Lee Enfield stick could be pointed at an enemy combatant and I could shout BANG to signify the gun was discharged. If I did this while standing behind my buddy with the barrel of the Lee Enfield stick about an inch from his skull, the bang would result in an immediate and obvious death. That was simple. But what about when I was firing from the bottom of the mound at a target crouching behind the dirt emplacement? When I shouted bang, I knew that most of the time the bullets would likely miss unless I had a clear shot. My friends being shot at also knew that this was the reality of the situation, so they kept their heads down. Without a clear sense of how likely it was to kill someone in this situation, the game usually resulted in a lot of bangs before somebody got brave enough to run up the hill, close the distance and create a clearer shot. If they saw you running in, well, then you were going to be KIA pretty quickly. Innovations made this more fun, like chucking a small tennis ball and yelling smoke. That was accepted as producing a cloud of smoke through which people could not shoot. Hurrah! And we decided on a rule that only one smoke grenade was allowed per person. But what about when a shot was fairly clear but not completely so? I yelled bang and my buddy refused to drop down KIA. Yes, you remember it too, most likely. The game would grind to a halt as an argument would break out. I shot you! You're dead! No, I'm not! And so on. We needed some clear rules. The greatest innovation when we started to play Traveller was that we could roll dice to determine whether the shot hit and killed the guy or whether it missed. We also realised pretty quickly that this mechanism for play could also be applied to pretty much any question of success or failure and that led to the realisation that we didn't in fact need to run around outside in the British rain and mud anymore. We started to play indoors around the table with some sketch out paper maps and even some tokens to represent the soldiers. Dice determined the outcomes of edge situations. Roll 2d6, get 8 or more to succeed. What was interesting to me as a young gamer was the situations we were playing out. I was strongly interested in World War II and had questions about what might happen if the war did not end in defeat for the Third Reich in 1945. It wasn't that I was a fan of Nazi Germany, quite the opposite because the Nazis were clearly the bad guys in our stories, but it was true that someone had to play the bad guys. 
We didn't play World War II at the table because we were playing science fiction adventures in the far future using 1977 Traveller. My friend Daniel was a referee and he got to play all the bad guys. My other friends and I got to play an individual character who was born into the situation of a far future universe filled with starships, laser rifles and weird planets. Most of our play was inspired by Star Wars, I think, so the worlds were generally generic single biomes like the ice world or the desert world, and that was fine for us. What was new was creating a character who wasn't the same as me. In Traveller, I would randomly generate some descriptive details using dice and then play through a prior service game that would flesh out my character's skill and experience. My first character was a marine who, at the end of the prior service game, was deployed as part of a small group of travellers, free-roaming mercenaries who hired themselves out to do odd jobs for various patrons. And so we learned to create characters using descriptive words and quantified numbers. The numbers would be used to determine how likely or unlikely were our actions. Back then, different situations and actions would use the characteristics and skills your characters had in various different ways. The only recognisably core mechanism of the game was the one written down for combat. Roll 2d6, add the numbers together and score 8 or more. Like many gamers from that period, we quickly got fed up with looking up at how each skill was supposed to be tested and simply used that core die roll for pretty much everything. And that's about all I need to run a game today, truth be told. Everything else is optional detail. Nowadays, my favourite core mechanism is rolling 3d6 and scoring less than or equal to the value of the attribute or skill listed on my character sheet. It's simple, easy, quick and, most of all, intuitive. And that's the basis for my gaming. Certainly, I enjoy the added granularity of having not just a yes or no adjudication from the die roll, the pass or fail condition, but also of having an extreme yes and or no and in the form of a critical success or critical failure. But other than that, 3d6 roll low versus the character's trait value is enough. Well, anyway, that's enough until my character gets shot running up that now imaginary hill to take the enemy's position. Two additional rules arose in my gaming experience quite quickly, again informed by Traveller. The first was the idea of a modifier. The second was the concept of damage to the character. Modifiers are common in role-playing games. We began by modifying the target number needed, thus the basic 8 plus roll became 10 plus for a difficult action or a 6 plus for an easier one. This modifier depended on the situation and was decided by the referee. Sometimes there would be a bit of disagreement, but usually the decision was made by the referee based on general gut feeling, also known as intuition, and everyone would roll with it. The second form of modifier was that which altered the character's values, such as their characteristic value or the skill value. Traveller introduced this during prior service play, so we caught onto the idea quickly. These days, it's the most common way I do things because modifying the number needed is simplest and the number needed when I play is based on the character's traits. Thus, if I need a 12 or less on 3d6, but it's a harder task than the number drops to, and they say, 10 or less. And that's easy. 
The third way I learned to modify roles came with games like Traveller's 4th Edition and the Storyteller System from White Wolf, games where there was a dice pool based on the value of the character's traits and you added or subtracted dice from the pool to make things easier or harder. Which way round depending on the specifics of the system? This was quite elegant in theory, but sometimes clumsier in practice. Handfuls of dice can be fun to roll, but counting them often took up a bit longer than I liked. There are undoubtedly many other ways to modify the odds of success using dice, but I'm sure you get the basic idea. The second additional rule was the introduction of the concept of damage. In short, when we played on the waste ground and ran around that mound with our Lee Enfield sticks, it was one-shot kills. Pretty simple. This was a bit of a problem when you played on pen and paper because, frankly, you'd spend longer rolling up and playing prior service to get your traveller character than you'd actually survive in play during a firefight. The answer we gleaned from Traveller was kind of simple. Weapons inflicted an amount of damage and the damage degraded your physical characteristics. Once one of your strength, endurance or dexterity stats got to zero, you were injured. Once two were zeroed, you were unconscious. And when you lost all three, well, then you were dead. Simple, elegant and actually very easy to grasp. Damage was rolled on regular D6 dice too, so your weapon would do more damage if it was bigger or you were stronger, depending on if it was a ranged weapon or a melee weapon. By adding in methods to recover lost points of characteristic through medical attention, drugs, surgery or the simple passing of time while resting, Traveller gave us all the tools we needed to run exciting firefights and hand-to-hand assaults in the theatre of our minds. We'd used sketches and tokens to sort out distance and range but most of it was taking place in our minds and we loved it and I've never stopped playing in the 40 or more years since. What was always most interesting to me was the world, the situation the character begins in, the scenario that the game is focused around, and the arising narrative that emerges through playing the game. The idea of an interesting world, a world that was created by the referee, in which we could go and explore, really only exploded into my consciousness when I stole my dad's discarded copy of RuneQuest. We had obviously been playing in my friend Daniel's imaginary worlds with Traveller before this realisation arrived in my mind, but once I got it, well, there really was no turning back. The imaginary world of Glorantha was different from the typical fantasy worlds that we had experienced with Dungeons & Dragons, the only other game we'd really engaged with by 1980. In truth, it wasn't in practice played in all that different a manner, in fact which helped me to transition from dungeoneering to hex crawling towards a more explorative and open mode of play but RuneQuest did have a unique fantasy world. There were gods and goddesses, there was interesting magic and there were strange new creatures. I was hooked immediately. This was a world that grabbed my imagination. Looking back I can see where my fascination with role-playing games became attached to my fascination with place and person. RuneQuest gave me the magical map of Dragon Pass from the back of the rulebook and I spent more hours than I could count staring at it, exploring it in my mind and yearning to play in that world. But my friends were not so inclined. My friends were not engaged in quite the same way by the world of the game. They, like many gamers, were more interested in other aspects of the play. 
In this case, my friends took me down the route into exploring the different ways to configure the rules of the game and create increasingly detailed characters with which to play. Thus entered Rollmaster, where we learned the value of detail and began the quest for increasingly complex rules to simulate the imagined reality of the world. Again, looking back from the vantage of all these years later, I can see that my growing disquiet with the games we played and the games I ran, my reason for never settling on anything for very long, was largely because I was searching for all the wrong things in all the wrong places. As clarity has emerged from all the swirling eddies of distraction and contamination to my thinking, the things I value most in gaming are emerging too. Yes, I do like to have a degree of grounded realism to my games, but I also deeply want to have that grounded realism take place within an interesting world with interesting characters. The world is not interesting because of the game rules. It's interesting because of the situations it presents and the characters who live within it. The characters are interesting not because of the abilities and powers that they might have, but because of the personalities that emerge when we put those characters into those challenging situations. In other words, I realised that I needed to subtract all the gumph that gets in the way of seeing the characters in the world so that I could focus on what really matters to me. What engages me is exploring the world and the characters who inhabit that world. I want to delve deeply into the imaginary places and people, not nitpick over small distinctions of detail. And so a specific series of permutations is emerging from my mind. The basic mechanisms of play remain consistent, only adding those elements which are necessary to adjudicate the kinds of characters in the kinds of worlds and taking the kinds of action that are specific to those situations. Starting from the basis of this is a regular human being in a regular world like Earth, I can imagine permutations of the world that imply further permutations for the characters and the situations they find themselves in. The tools I need are far fewer than the regular community of gamers might tell me I need. I certainly don't need any more sets of rules. I own dozens, even after culling hundreds from my stacks and shelves. What I need is less clutter in my hobby so that I can have space to imagine. And so I've begun to subtract things from my gaming. If it's World War II, then do I need psionics or magic? It's a good question. But if it's a game like back when I started on the waste ground assaulting that hill, then the answer is pretty much a no. Neither do I really need anything more than to define the roles of the characters in the game in broad descriptive terms. This is the rifleman, that's a grenadier, and over there is a tank driver. We need to define the elements that get used in play. It's probably best to grab the most obvious bits we need to begin and then to only add those bits we discover we forgot to add in as the game progresses. I don't need a list of every rifle from World War II. I just need to know the range and effectiveness of the Lee Enfield and the Mauser, plus perhaps a frag grenade and a smoke grenade. We need to know the protection value of a steel helmet, but everything else is probably just descriptive, at least at first. I guess that's where I'll leave things for today. What is it that draws you to role-playing games? What are the core elements which make those games come alive at the table for you? And what's the specific combination of elements which would engage you the most? Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.
I love to hear from you. So if you've got a question or comment, then please hop over to speakpipe.com slash roleplayrescue, where you can live up to a 90 second message. That's speakpipe, S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash roleplayrescue. All the links in the show notes. Let's see who called today. Hey, Che. Just listening to episode 12, and in response to your response, yes, of course, a mind map. Um, I think I, I, was prob- I, I would probably have thought about that, um, I, although I guess it's, you know, just sort of didn't occur to me that, uh, you know, circles and lines, of course, that's a mind map. Uh, you know, it, even in for for my use in terms of creating adventures, I often use a mind map. But I also, in my written adventure, will include connections between locations, so that there is some idea of where you can go from one area to another. And uh, rather than, you know, it just being a, a map of a dungeon, per se, it could be a dungeon room that connects to an outdoor space or another dungeon room or a portal to a complete other world. Aloha, Che. It's Brian calling in from way down here in the Queensland and wanted to call you uh, first to say thank you guys so much to you and Barry for, gosh, taking a whole episode and answering the questions. Um, it, it really helped, and it's it's helping me kind of, I guess, in, in my own mind, I, I'm now kind of thinking about the games and systems and worlds that, that I like to run or like to play in, and hearing both of you kind of give your perspectives on especially kind of answer some of the specific questions about why GURPS and 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 how it how it works for you guys and 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 the you know the kind of the the challenge or enjoyment of adapting it um was really really good so uh i greatly appreciate it hopefully hopefully others did too uh maybe maybe you guys need a little little GURPS spinoff uh podcast ha jason here just listening to your episode on role master unified I'm in the car, so I can't see the episode number at the moment, but very interesting. I'm glad you're excited about it. I would definitely be interested in that. Of course, you know, the the problem is matching our schedules. Um, I have not sat down and gone through all, gone through both books, core law and spell law yet. I, I've, you know, doing the squirrel thing and got distracted by other projects. So I'm looking at other things right now. Uh, hero system, believe it or not. So who knows, but one of these days uh, I'll, I'll get down to read it. But if, if we can make the time to do it, and if we're doing other world immersion, then I don't have to know the rules anyway. So it's all good. <laughs> um, I, I guess that is really good for a, like, for a player like me who's, whose attention's divided. But great job. Looking forward to your next episode. Take care. So that's it for another week massive thanks to frank brian and jason for the call-ins please guys keep them coming and remember it's speakpipe.com slash roleplayrescue thanks also to the roleplay rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpg rescue on top of 
all of these regular episodes, those guys are funding the GM's Journal week by week and helping to support the school game club I run. Thanks to John from Tell of the Manticore for all the show music. And a big thanks to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. I'll see you again next time. Game on.